maybe the moon landings didn't happen. You know, they, they have the pictures of, of them walking there, and, and you can still, to, to this day, you can see a picture of, of the, where, where they landed uh, through a telescope. Uh, there's even the, the picture of a, a Japanese space probe that has the exact identical picture of the moon that was there uh, in the moon landing in the, in the 60s. And so, uh, but maybe it didn't happen. You know, you have those eyewitnesses there, the men who were supposedly in the, in the, uh, in the in the ship and the men who were actually stepping onto the the, the moon and uh, but you know maybe those eyewitnesses maybe maybe they have a lot of incentives to uh, not uh, to not be truthful and you have the hundreds of other people who are also involved in in the uh, in the project of landing on the moon uh, but maybe you know it's, it's always easy for hundreds of people to keep a secret uh, right I mean that's always something that's that's really easy to do and of course the Soviets never disputed that the United States landed on the moon. You would think that if anything, if anything was in doubt at the time, that they would have said something about it. But maybe it didn't happen. I'm not trying to convince you that the moon landing really happened. That, that's not, I, I'm not a particular concern. But for most people, that kind of historical revisionism, same thing with Holocaust deniers or with denials of the, the atomic bomb or the George Washington's crossing of the Trenton or, or any, of those, any of those things that, that people might want to deny, all of the evidence seems to point to the fact that those events actually happened. What if there were another event in which you had not a handful of eyewitnesses, but hundreds of eyewitnesses in which everything about the events pointed to the fact that it had happened. What if you even had those eyewitnesses who not only saw it, you had not only this other evidence that corroborated it, but those men, how, however implausible it might seem, they were willing to die for what they had witnessed. They were willing to give their lives for it. And yet, this is, this is an event, a fact of history that despite all the evidence that points to it, people sometimes deny. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our faith as Christians is built on the historical facts of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And we have every reason to believe that it's true. What I hope that you'll see today is that we are saved by the gospel. By the good news that Jesus, in space and time, in the, in the history that we ourselves live in, died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And what I want you to see first is the gospel saves. The gospel saves. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to read verses 1 and 2 with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
lots of times in Paul's letters and in, in, in a few different places, he reminds people of things. You can talk about that in like Philippians 3, where he is talking about reminding them of what he had taught them before, that that's something that's safe, that's something that's protective, that's something that he often did. We often need to be reminded of the gospel. But most translations are just a little bit, translate this just a little bit soft. Where there where it says, now I would remind you, brothers, it's literally, I make known to you. You think of what's going on here. One of the things that was happening, Paul has been addressing issue after issue after issue in the Corinthian church. And he's, he's addressed all these very important issues. But here is the biggest issue. There were some people, if you look at verses 12 through 14, which I'll read in a second. There were some people who were denying the resurrection. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul's coming down to the biggest issue, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's not true, then they have no reason to believe. They have nothing to, to place their hope in. And so he's saying that I, I'm going to make known to you. It's something that, they had, that he had made known to them before. It's something that he had delivered to them. Uh, and yet a whole lot about the way that the Corinthians were living and behaving toward one another, it looked like they hadn't really heard it and they hadn't really believed it. Now then, I want you to see that this is the gospel that, they, that he preached to them in which they received. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 1 to 1 Corinthians 1, to verses 4 through 9. This is the gospel that Paul has great confidence that they received. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. Look what Paul says. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul had great confidence that, that, yes, they were indeed saved. Yes, that the gospel had been received by them. And I think I want you to know something here. We're going to get, get into a, a warning here. A lot of this, a lot of this passage is, uh, especially the beginning, is a warning. We see that Paul's giving of warnings is not incompatible with his certainty that they will be saved. That those things can go together. We can, we can believe that we have assurance of salvation, that, that, God, that Jesus Christ himself will sustain us to the end, and at the same time have warnings. Sometimes when people read warnings in Scripture, they automatically assume that there must be some possibility of losing one's salvation. But everything that we see about the promises of God, about God's acts of salvation, declare to us that it is secure, that our salvation in Jesus Christ is secure. Even as we read this morning in John 10, we saw how Jesus himself is the one who holds us. Well, Jesus himself is the one who keeps us. We read in 1 Corinthians 1 that he is the one who sustains us. If, if we were to be able to lose our salvation, it would be to say that Jesus Christ is incapable of holding onto his own. That's not what the warnings indicate. 
We know from Scripture that we have every reason to have assurance of salvation, every reason to believe that we are secure in Christ Jesus because he died for us. Now, the flip side of that is also true. Even just because we believe that we cannot lose our salvation, because we know that we are secure in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that we should not be issuing warnings. Where the Scriptures warn us, We ought to hear those warnings as warnings. They are God's word to us. And when we hear God's word, that is God's way of sustaining us to the end. God doesn't only determine the ends. He also determines the means to the end. And he uses these warnings to make sure that his people make it all the way to the end. Well, he says there, this is the gospel that you received, and he is confident that they did, in fact, receive it. And he says next, he says, in which you stand. There is no place else to stand except in the gospel. It is, it is the place where we can stand secure. It is the place where we have protection. Over and over again in the scriptures, God is spoken of as a rock or a fortress or a hiding place. He is the one who is the protector over us. The way that God protects us is through the gospel. The gospel secures us from every danger, every danger of death, every danger of Satan, every danger of of falling away. It is God's way of holding us, of securing us, of maintaining us. It is the gospel in which we stand. And then he says, and by which you are being saved. Lots of times, typically, often when we talk about salvation we talk about it in the past tense and there's nothing wrong with that in fact there's a lot right about that we can talk about salvation as something that has happened to us because we can talk about regeneration or that is being born again that point in time in which God made us alive or we can talk about conversion that is that point in time when we turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ or we can talk about being justified that point in time in which God forgave our sins and declared us to be righteous before him because of our faith in Jesus Christ those are all things that happened in the past in which we stand today that have effects on our lives still now And of course, we can talk about salvation also as something that happens in the future. Much of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is about what is going to happen in the future. That is, at a point in the future, Jesus Christ is going to return. We're going to be freed from remaining sin. We're going to be freed from the temptations of Satan. We're going to be freed from uh, the, the world and its powers. We're going to be freed from death itself. And we're going to live glorified with Jesus Christ forever and ever. We can talk about our, fu- our, our salvation in the past, and we can talk about our salvation in the future. But here Paul is talking about our salvation in the present. It is a present act that is happening. God is actively engaged in saving us now. Typically, this goes under the heading of sanctification. In theological terms, it is, the, it is the, the truth that God is transforming us presently. That that regeneration and repentance that happened at a point in time in the past continues into the present. And that God even now is sustaining us. He is strengthening us. He is causing us to grow. He is causing us to mature. And so that's, that's what God is doing for us even now. He is saving us. He is causing us to persevere all the way to the end. And so God is saving us. Do you rejoice in that? 
Typically, we rejoice and we, we think about being saved in the past. We think about being saved in the future. But we ought to rejoice even now. We ought to have great gratitude now that God is God is saving us. God is sustaining us. The reason why you are a Christian today and the reason why you will be a Christian tomorrow is because Jesus Christ is saving you. This is the gospel that is saving you. That's something that great that God is doing for us. I also want you, something I hope that you'll see in, in this chapter and even the, the messages that come later is what I would call the, the basic gospel and the broad gospel. You know, we should never lose the basic gospel. We should never fail to rejoice in the basic gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We should never lose that. We should never think that that is something to be, to be uh, looked down upon or, or overly simplistic. That is a summary of the truth about everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, he rose for our justification, and he is coming again to make us right with him, to, to, bring, us, to bring us to himself, to gather his people for himself. But I also want you to see, we also ought to keep extending our understanding to the gospel more broadly considered. Election, predestination, justification, regeneration, conversion, sanctification, perseverance. That's all, those are all blessings of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's all about the storyline of the gospel. Atonement, indwelling, Return, those are all ways of talking about the ways that the, the gospel is secured for us. You may not know what all those things mean. Rejoice in knowing that you trust in the basic gospel. And keep learning more about what the, the gospel broadly considered means for us. That there are so many blessings. There are so many riches for us to, to learn. So many ways that we can, we can draw upon what God has done for us in the gospel, the ways that comfort us, ways that enrich our lives, ways that sustain us, ways that, that challenge us. Those are all things that we ought to be considering for ourselves. Those, no one ought to ever say, you know, that's just kind of that basic stuff that I don't really need. Nor should anyone ever say, hey, I've got the basics of the gospel. I don't need to learn anything else. We need all of those. We, we need to know every part. And we are working toward meeting week after week to hear God's word, to, to hear open for us, revealed from the mouth of God, what the gospel means for us in all of its aspects, in all of its uh, events, in everything that it accomplishes for us. The gospel, the gospel has saved us. The gospel is saving us. The gospel will save us. The gospel saves and we want to know all of it. But then he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. We cannot depart from the basic facts of the gospel. It is, it is what was happening in Corinth and what happened in many churches in, in the New Testament times, what happens in many churches today, what will happen in many churches always. While we always must guard the truth, we must guard the good deposit. It's why we must always keep working to clarify what we understand and keep, keep contending for the faith once delivered to, to all the saints. 
is that the gospel can be distorted. And the distortion in Corinth was that some denied the resurrection. And Paul is saying, if you deny the resurrection, if you do not hold fast to the gospel that saves, the only gospel that saves, the gospel that must not be distorted, the gospel that must not be changed, the gospel that must not be added to, if unless you hold fast to that, well, then you're believing. Look at what he says, unless you believed in vain. Now, sometimes the Bible talks about superficial believing. You can see that in some places in John. You can see that in the parable of the soils that Jesus tells us. We can see superficial forms of faith uh, in the book of Acts. So not everybody who says that they believe genuinely believes. That's a fact. That's something that we deal with, something that we recognize. But here he's not talking about superficial believing. He's talking about if you, if you do not believe the gospel as it's presented, then there's no reason for you to believe at all. If you don't believe that the resurrection happened, if you do not believe in the resurrection, you're believing in vain. It's worthless. It's pointless. You cannot be saved. You cannot be being saved. You have not been saved unless you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so that's what we begin to, to explore here. That's what we begin to see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We must believe that he was resurrected from the grave. Without that, we are not saved. But in fact, we are saved. As we'll see, we see the facts of the gospel in verses three through five. There we see the gospel summarized. Read verses three through five with me. It says, for... I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Well, Paul says, I, I delivered this as, as of first importance what he received. You can go and read someplace like Galatians 1 and 2, and you can see that, that Paul Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul and revealed to, to Paul himself, Jesus in person, appeared to Paul and, and revealed the gospel to him. And then that same gospel that was revealed to Paul was then confirmed with the other apostles. So there's what he's talking about. The, the language here is of this, this, set, uh, this set teaching, this standard of words that he would use to express the gospel that must not be departed from. And so he says, this is what I received, that, that Christ. Now, many of you may know already, but, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Jesus' title. Christ means anointed one. That is a way of talking about the one who was anointed as king. And so Jesus is the Christ, or in the Old Testament, it was known as the Messiah. Same, different, different language, different words, same meaning, the anointed one. And so Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who was prophesied. The, the idea of the Christ or the idea of the Messiah is that there would one day come this Savior King who would come and save his people from their sins. Only Jesus was not the kind of Savior King that people were hoping for. Uh, he talked about in earlier in, the, in 1 Corinthians about how he came preaching Christ and him crucified when nobody wanted to hear that. Jews did not want to hear, hear about that. They didn't want to hear about a suffering, atoning king. They wanted to hear about a powerful, conquering king. 
And so they, they looked for that, and they didn't, like, they didn't like to hear about Jesus dying on the cross. You think about the, the pain that Jesus, this was an awful death. Physically, it was awful. It was shameful. You know, here was a man who was nailed to a crossbeam, a tree, and there he would die of all kinds of awful causes. And what's more is it was shameful. He was held there, suspended between heaven and earth. And that was a sign of God's curse on him. And so how can you believe in that Christ? In fact, how do you take what the Old Testament says about the Christ, that he is on the one hand, one who was, say, when we look at Psalm 22, one who was humiliated, one who was betrayed, handed over into the hands of his enemies, one who was even abandoned by God himself. How do you match that, Psalm 22, with Psalm 16, where God does not abandon his anointed one to the grave? Or Psalm 2, where God's anointed one will rule the nations? How do you fit those things together? Well, Jesus Christ resolves that ambiguity, resolves that difficulty, because he is the one who died for sinners, for his people to secure them for himself and then rose again and now reigns over all creation, over all nations and even will come and, and, and put all things under his feet at the end. Now then we see that this is the Christ. This is the Christ who died for our sins. That for our sins, that's the core interpretation of the death of Jesus Christ. Much more than the physical much more than the outward shame was the spiritual reality that Jesus Christ was giving himself for our sins. He was dying in our place, dying as our substitute. And in dying as our substitute, he was taking the penalty for our sins upon himself. And he was atoning for our sins. He was removing that barrier of sin that kept us from God. At its core, that is what Jesus Christ was doing for us. He died for our sins. Well, and then he was buried bodily. He was taken down from the cross. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important bit of fact where according to the Roman soldiers, according to those who were around, everyone saw Jesus die people who were very skilled at killing people made sure that Jesus was dead before he was taken into the grave, before he was buried. So that's an important fact that leads us to the second major element of the gospel. And that is that he was raised on the third day. On the third day, the tomb was empty. People went to go and see it and Jesus was not there. Women were there to see, to 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 cover Jesus' body, to anoint his body with, with ointment, and he was not there. The apostles went to see it. He was not there. The, even those who opposed Jesus could not present his body because he was risen from the dead. And you notice there that says, according to the scriptures. Turn over in your Bibles to Luke 24, to Luke 24. Turn to Luke 24 and read verses 26 and 27. Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. 
And look at what it says. Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. It says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Isn't that the two parts? That he should suffer on the cross and then enter into his glory, having been raised from the dead? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Or skip down to verse 44. There he says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That in accordance with the scriptures, Jesus Christ, everything that it says that the Christ would do in the Old Testament, Jesus did. He died on the cross according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He was raised for us to take our sins away. How do we know that? How do we know that to be true? Look at the last part there. In verse 5 it says, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. These were the men who had been with Jesus for those three years of his ministry. Those men who had been taught from Jesus, about all that Jesus would do. The, even the ones who had heard Jesus predict that he must be betrayed, that he must be handed over into the hands of the, the chief priests and the elders, that he must be crucified, that he must die and be raised on the third day. He had told them on multiple occasions, this is what must happen. And Jesus appeared to them. Jesus appeared to them and he had appointed them as apostles, those who would act as eyewitnesses. And these men... These men went out and preached the gospel to the world. The gospel gospel has come and it's been preached to us. The eyewitness testimony that Jesus is raised from the dead. These men made sure that it made it to us. We have their writings recorded in the scriptures. We have their testimony everywhere. And these men were ready to go to the grave confessing that however implausible it might seem to the natural mind that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Believe. Believe because of the eyewitnesses. These men saw in space and time in the same world that we live in, they inhabited the same place They observed in the same way Jesus Christ raised from the dead. As as sure as you are of anything that you have ever seen, these men saw Jesus raised from the dead. These were not strong men who, who obviously held strongly to Jesus as the Messiah. These were men who only a few days before were scattered. Peter himself, the one that Jesus appeared to first, even Peter himself had denied Jesus on the night of his betrayal. But something transformed them. The most plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ appeared to them. And that was the thing that gave them the confidence to go out and preach that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, that caused them to stand up in front of the Sanhedrin, to stand up in front of the Jewish council and to stand up in front of the rulers of the Jews and say, this same Jesus that you crucified is now raised from the dead. Peter said that. 
knowing that these men had the power of life and death, the, a, a, a few, a few, a, a little over a month earlier, Peter had stood before some servant girls, some teenagers, you know, who carried water and stuff, and denied Jesus because he was afraid. And now he is preaching before the powers of the land the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And so this is the basic gospel. Summarize. Jesus Christ rose, died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas and to the apostles. That's the summary of the gospel. That's the summary of the historical facts of the gospel. You know, I want you, I want you to understand that these things actually happened. The gospel is not only about spiritual realities and spiritual truths. It is spiritual realities. It is spiritual truths. But it's based on historical facts of things that happened for us and for our salvation. These things happen. Well, next we see that this gospel, the gospel was preached. The gospel preached. Look at verses 6 through 11. It says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verses 3 through 5 have this structure that kind of marks it separate from verses 6 through 11. Uh, marks it as a kind of early church creed. This is what we believe. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead, appeared to the apostles. That's the basic outline. But here, starting in verse 6, Paul begins to add on to that, even, even further historical verification. He says, Jesus appeared alive to more than 500 men. Most commentators speculate that this was the meeting in Galilee at which Jesus gave the Great Commission. Whatever the circumstances, Jesus appeared to more than 500 men. And at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, many of them were still alive. You understand what that means? And think about the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was falsifiable. That means it could be proven wrong. If you want to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what'd you have to do? Go to the tomb that he was buried in. Oh, he's not in that tomb. Well, what do you have to do to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, just bring his body out. Or what do you have to do to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, nobody saw it. But the Corinthians could go and find people still alive who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And not men who maybe had something to gain from it. These were men who saw Jesus risen from the dead and they had everything to lose. And they were willing to lose it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Believe because of the eyewitnesses. Believe because of the testimony. They could go and verify it. Every part of it, every part, all of the evidence 
says Jesus was raised from the dead. Whatever the world may think about that, if it only applies the same standard to truth, that it applies to other similar events, then we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul adds on one other person, James. Jesus appeared to James. This was during that 40 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, we saw last week when we were reading, uh, a few weeks ago, we were reading John 7, that it's not, it's not as if Jesus' own brothers really believed in him. It's not as if they were, they were in line following him all the way to the cross. Yes, Jesus, we believe in you. They didn't believe in him even as much as the disciples did. But here is Jesus' brother, James, saying, I, he appeared to James, and James becomes a believer, an eyewitness, one of the pillars of the church of Jerusalem. So he appeared to James, he believed. Then, uh, then finally, in verse 8, Paul says, he appeared to me says, last of all, as to one untimely born. That is, all of the other resurrection appearances happened during that 40 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. But not, not Paul. The, the word that's translated there uh, as, as to one untimely born normally refers to a, a stillborn child. Paul is highlighting the fact that he was dead. You know, you'd seem like, it, it seems like after Jesus has ascended into heaven that there's no hope that there would be an apostle like Paul. But on the Damascus road, Jesus himself appeared to Paul. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he says, for I am the least of the apostles. Paul, Paul looked at himself. And Paul, he says, I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I think there's this way of thinking about the Christian life that, that constantly says, hey, don't look back at your past. Don't remember any of that. Only look toward the future. The future is bright and our past is ugly. And that's, that much is true. Our future, our future hope is very much secure and very bright. And our past is ugly. But Paul never forgot who he was. Paul never forgot who he had been. None of us should ever forget what we were. That we were dead in our sins. That we were under the judgment of God. That we were even under God's wrath. None of us should, should miss out on what we were spared from. We deserve so much worse than what we have. We deserve the unending torment of the judgment and wrath of God. We deserve nothing. We're good enough for nothing. And Paul says, me more than anybody. I persecuted the church of God. And you know, if there was anybody who was unlikely to be turned around and become an apostle, to become one who would be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be the one who was in charge of the persecution squad? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ turned Paul from a persecutor of Jesus Christ to a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the resurrection. That is the power of the transforming work. And we see here this connection between 
between the historical realities of the gospel and the historical, the, the, the real-time presence of experiences of the gospel in life. That Jesus really, in history, died on the cross and rose from the dead. And Paul really was transformed in himself from being a persecutor to being a preacher. That is what the gospel does. That is why we say that the gospel has the power to save, because it saves. It saves men like Paul. It saves men like us. It saves us from what we were, and it saves us to be resurrected with Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know, Paul reproved and corrected the Corinthians for being boasters. Paul talks about what he does. But he talks about it very differently. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It was not I, but the grace of God in me. We ought to be able to talk that way in a certain sense. But we ought to know that it is by the grace of God that we are able to do what we do. And look at what he says. He says, I worked harder than all of them. Than all the other apostles. Paul was the hardest working man in the apostolic business. He was the hardest worker because he had received the grace of God because God was favorable toward him. God did not give him what he deserved, but he gave him the grace that he did not deserve. And that ought to teach us not to think of grace as something that leads to passivity and laziness. That kind of way of thinking about the grace of God is deficient and harmful. The grace of God causes us to work the grace of God produces in us hard work strenuous effort laying our lives on the line working ourselves to the bone straining onward that's what the grace of God does the grace of God does not leave us in bed for an extra hour the grace of God does not does not secure us in a nice comfortable place the the grace of God pushes us to work hard. That's what we ought to be looking for. And you know what? We ought to be able to look back on the last day when Jesus Christ has us there. And he, we are there. We are presenting to him all of the good things that we have done. And I hope that there will be a lot of hard work that we get to look at. We'll get to look at a lot of hard work in our lives. We'll be able to look at all the good works that we did. We'll be able to see that we did do a lot. And then we will say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God gets credit for it. It was not I, but the grace of God within me. The grace of God with me. That brings glory to God. Our good works bring glory to God. And you know what? The grace of God will cause us to work harder than the law ever would. The law is good. There, as we memorized last week, it is, there is great reward in obeying the commands of God. But the law in itself is not able to make men like this. It's not able to make Paul the apostle. 
It can make Paul, it can make Saul the persecutor, but it can't make Paul the apostle. The grace of God does that. The grace of God causes us to work harder than the law ever could make us work. God has been so good to us. We see here that the grace of God even talks about the grace of God as a power that is at work in him. Grace, grace is God's favor toward us. It is simply God's favorable looking upon us. But what that means in actual experience is by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are working hard. We are producing fruit. We are doing good works. We're straining. We're working. We're striving until the end. And so this is how the gospel gets to us. We have the historical realities of the gospel, the two parts here, and the historical realities of the gospel, and then the gospel transforms people who then go out and preach the gospel. And look at what he says there at the end. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. That's what God did for us. That's what happens. We believed, and God, God helped us. God came to us. God, God made sure that the gospel made it to us. This is what we believed, and this is what was preached to us. And so let us believe the good news about Jesus Christ. Let us believe that Jesus Christ has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. And let us be people who are transformed to preach that gospel still to others. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of your word, the testimony of your apostles, the testimony of your scriptures, that all of the prophecies, all the pictures, everything that, everything that you predicted would happen, happened. Everything that you, that, that, that you caused to happen when the, when Jesus was betrayed in the hands of sinners and, and, and died on the cross and for our sins and was raised from the dead, all those things were, were recorded for our benefit, for our salvation. All these things have been handed on from generation to generation that your word has been preserved even to this day so that we might know we might know your word we might know the gospel we might be saved by the gospel help us to believe help us to believe for the sake of the testimony help us to believe because it's true your gospel is true and we believe please grant that our hearts will be open please grant that we would be people who are transformed even to make this gospel known to others in the name of jesus who sustains us even to the end in his name we pray amen